BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com. Or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Brought to you by the first ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Hello, friends. Jack, Flight School O'Brien here, uh, also known as Jack. Still can touch Ned if I get a running start and have an eaten heavy breakfast. O'Brien, uh, both nicknames that I go by. Inviting you to check out Miles and Jack Got Mad Boosties for a weekly basketball conversation with me and my co-host from the Daily Zeitgeist, Miles Gray. We are joined by comedians, writers, podcasters, and fellow NBA fans as we discuss the latest news and events from around the league. Check it out. Miles and Jack Got Mad Boosties. Brought to you by the first ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, you might think I'm delirious the way I run you down. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, we're revisiting a topic we've covered in a previous couple of episodes of Forward Thinking. We're revisiting uh, autonomous cars, self driving cars. Yeah, because we we had two whole episodes about them. We recommend listening to them. They are in our audio archives. Yes. But, uh, but there are a lot of other things that we still wanted to talk about and also some interesting new information that has arisen. Yeah, and part of that was just kind of talking about the history of self-driving cars and developing them because we didn't really talk about in those previous episodes. And, uh, you know, there was some work that was done as early as the 1970s in trying to create self-driving or autonomous cars. And some of that uh, technology has made its way into vehicles. Things like cruise control is a very simple uh, manifestation 
But we also have things like collision detection, parking assistance, all this other kind of technology that has been incorporated into various models of cars over the last few years. And we're seeing, you know, year over year, cars are getting more and more of these autonomous features built into them. Uh, we haven't quite reached the point where you can go and buy a truly autonomous car off the lot and have it drive you home. But we're getting there. Uh, the question is, how fast are we going to get there? But we'll kind of address that a little bit later. To look at the true kind of history of the modern self-driving car, you got to look at um, a mysterious organization, a part of the Department of Defense. Uh-oh. Yeah. So uh, Department of Defense, yeah, United States Department of Defense has a, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. Uh, DARPA is actually responsible for a lot of technology that we use today. So they're building transformers, right? Is that it? Actually, autonomous cars. Here's the funny thing. Here's the funny thing. They are working on humanoid robots right now. Ah. That's the latest challenge. But the the challenges we're talking about are autonomous cars that were called robots, but uh, don't transform into uh, humanoid robots. They are not in disguise. They're just robots in car form. So. So they're like half of a transformer. Yes, they're like yes, a the, transformer the and bo- half of its capability. The boring half, <laughs> and and a lot of this is hypothetically for, uh, say, disaster relief work, stuff like that. Uh, um, yes, military uh, purposes. Specifically, it says they dark- like they like talking about the disaster relief a lot. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the that's the cheery way of putting it. Yeah, because right. they the specific mission of DARPA, according to the website, is DARPA's mission is to maintain the technological superiority of the U.S. military and prevent technological surprise from harming our national security. By by sponsoring revolutionary high payoff research, bridging the gap between fundamental discoveries and their military use. Not quite as fuzzy and warm as the, the, we want to, to improve disaster relief uh, response, but I mean, it's honest. <laughs> so, but DARPA has been, been responsible for technology that has given us the opportunity to have a job because it was DARPA that funded the ARPANET, which is the predecessor to the internet. So, do you guys know when uh, when DARPA got started? Like, what what event precipitated the the founding of DARPA? Can you can you take a wild guess of what event in history would have inspired the United States to launch a re- research and development organization to try and maintain technological superiority? I'm going to say either. Um Either Sputnik or when they canceled Happy Days. You were right the first time. It was Sputnik. <laughs> okay. uh, Sputnik was, in fact, the event that inspired the United States to form DARPA. So, of course, Sputnik was when the Soviet Union launched a satellite that orbited the Earth and went beep a few times. Terrifying. Uh, yeah. Well, no, Sputnik, terrifying. Sputnik 2 is what was terrifying because that had the dog in it. Leica. Aww. Yeah. Aww. Poor Leica, who suffocated pretty quickly in that because it, it failures in the Sputnik 2. So, DARPA, anyway. yeah, getting back to the cheerfulness, DARPA ended up funding lots of different projects, including what would become the Internet, or at least the predecessor to the Internet, I should be clear. And then also in uh, 2004, decided to get into the automated car business in a way. They actually submitted a challenge to the world, or really, I should say, to the United States. Um, and they said that the purpose of the DARPA Grand Challenge 2004 which was the first year they held it, is to leverage American ingenuity to accelerate the development of autonomous vehicle technologies that can be applied to military requirements. Uh, so we always get that military bit at the end. So uh, in that challenge, they had, I think, 25 groups. 
Uh, and the challenge specifically involved a route from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, which is 300 miles. It was a 300-mile course that these cars were expected to uh, to go on, and it included both on-road and off-road sections. They had cleared the on-road sections of traffic, so these robotic cars wouldn't be careening into p- uh, pedestrians and 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 uh, regular traffic. It wasn't um, on like Hollywood Boulevard or anything like no, that. No, no, that's, that's probably for the best. Probably, yeah, no, I've I've been on Hollywood Boulevard. That is for the best. A series of waypoints define the routes, and the vehicles were to follow those waypoints. And there were also some checkpoints where the teams were allowed to stand by in order to do quick repairs or refuel their vehicles uh, before the vehicle would continue on. However, every single vehicle had to be unmanned. And autonomous, which meant you could not control it by remote control. It had to be moving on its own. And the winning team would be the first one, or the one to navigate that route in the, the shortest amount of time, and they would win $1 million. So among those 25 teams were some racing teams. Uh, there was also Caltech and Virginia Tech were in there. There was even a high school team, the Palos Verdes High School Racing Team. And uh, other teams involved robot enthusiasts and other uh, companies and research facilities. So who won? Nobody. No, none of the vehicles were able to to go across that 300-mile route successfully within the time frame. So then they held another grand challenge in 2005, which was a little more... Um, conservative, I would say. Instead of 300 miles, it was 131.2 miles long. And uh, it was, so that made it less than half as long as the 2004 challenge. Um, they had five teams complete it. Uh, and Stanford went away with the first prize, winning $2 million. Some of the other teams included a couple teams from Carnegie Mellon and a team from Princeton. Uh, but the Stanford team completed the challenge in six hours, 53 minutes. Uh, their car relied on lasers, uh, optical cameras, and radar for environmental perception, and the data gathered by sensors was mapped against a drivability map that was used to set the direction and speed of the vehicle. And all the technical papers for all the teams, all of that is available on an archive site at DARPA. We'll try and link that in social so that yeah. you guys can see, because you can actually go and read their technical papers and see their approach to building an autonomous vehicle. It's really fascinating stuff, um, particularly if you're an engineer and you can understand all the terms. Even for me, where I could understand maybe 20% of them, I was really, <laughs> I was really excited to read them. And then you finally had the Urban Challenge, which was in 2007. So the Urban Challenge was stepping up the difficulty from the 2005 Challenge. It wasn't as long, but it was in an urban environment, meaning they were going to create traffic patterns. They had people driving actual cars, driving around to to make that more like a, a an actual town setting. Uh, they used an old, uh, no longer in use Air Force base uh, to create their little fake town and and have the three various courses. They had a national qualifying event. Uh, there were, uh, I think, 89 teams that had applied to be part of this. 35 were selected to participate in the national qualifying event, which took place over eight days, had three test areas. One course was uh, one where vehicles had to merge into and out of two-way traffic in a circulating course. And out of all the test days, only one vehicle was ever struck by a robotic car, 
And in my notes, I said, for getting fresh. So apparently a robot car just <laughs> mind its own. Actually, there's some funny stories from this. I'll tell you in a second. The second course tested cars' ability to stay within a lane on a meandering road. So if the road has lots of turns and curves in it, can the car actually maintain the right lane uh, in order for it to not veer into oncoming traffic? Like humans do so well. Yeah, well, <laughs> ideally, yes. Yeah, we'll have a lot more to say about that in a minute, too. Uh, they also had to go through a, a narrow street where they had parallel parked cars on either side of the street, and that section was called the gauntlet. <laughs> and the last part of that test was the robot had to locate and park in an assigned parking space and then pull back out and move on to the third course, which was a series of four-way intersections that the robot had to negotiate. So the robots had to detect traffic and obey the rules of the road. So, you know, when you come up to a four-way stop, who gets to go through first? It all depends upon when you arrived at the four-way stop and your position in relation to the other drivers. And also they put in roadblocks on the course, and the robots had to identify the roadblock, make a U-turn, and then plan some different plan route. alternate route. Yeah, yeah. It had to still get to its lo- to its end location. Um, and what was interesting was that eleven teams went on to the final challenge. Uh, that challenge required the robots to visit specific checkpoints, and the teams were not no- notified of the checkpoint locations until five minutes before the launch. So they had a map of the entire space like they knew what the they had a digital file that had all the the map of the fake town but they didn't know where the checkpoints were going to be on that map until 5 minutes before they were pulling out of the starting So they line. weren't allowed to plan the route until Exactly. They had to do it uh, right there in real time. Uh, the course also had 30 vehicles with drivers moving through the course during the test. So you had uh, real live drivers on the course at the same time and about half the vehicles were removed from the course for various errors. And here's the fun part. One of the errors was the Terramax vehicle that nearly drove into the old commissary building on the Air Force Base. So they they were able to stop it just before it drove into a building. Um, And also the Team UCF car spontaneously decided to park at a carport and just take a break. (laughs) (laughs) It just pulled into a carport and stopped. Just like, y'all, I give up. I'm done. I am done with this test. They eventually uh, disqualified it. Uh, Cornell and... uh, Cor- Cornell and MIT's vehicles gently bumped into each other. I like to say they were trading paint. Uh, they were trying to share a lane together, uh, but they were allowed to continue the uh, the course once they were separated and told, given a little time out. Uh, and then first place on that went to a team called Tartan Racing out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the second place went to Stanford again. Uh, first prize was $2 million again. So ultimately six teams finished the challenge that year, which showed that even though they ramped up the difficulty, they still had six teams from across the United States complete that course, which really showed the development of technology in the span of two years. Because remember, in 2004, no one finished. Well, right. three years, really, because it was 2007 when they did Urban Challenge. Right. And of, of course, at this point in 2007, many cars, if not most cars, uh, had onboard computers that sure. were controlling a lot of different systems. Right. It but, was mostly monitoring. But yeah, right. there was some control as well. But of course, after these challenges, some tech companies got a little curious. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about a company that rhymes with schmoogle? <laughs> um, I might be. Okay. I remember when this news broke because I have a friend who works at Google who told me that he didn't tell me about the car. He just told me, he's like, there's something that's so cool going on at Google, and I can't wait for it to become public because you're going to flip out. And it took about half a year before the news became public from when he told me that. Wow. And sure enough, I flipped out. 
they actually recruited from the challenges, didn't yes, they? Yes, they did. In fact, uh, the guy who is the project leader um, is, in fact, a uh, uh, one of the members of the Stanford team that oh, won. Sebastian Thrun. Mm-hmm. Yep, he won that 2005 challenge. So he was part of the the winning team back then, and uh, and there are a few others who also are working with Google that participated in the Grand Challenge, and other people who participated in the Grand Challenge are working for specific car companies. So not just Google, Google was not the only one to pull talent from this group. There are other car companies that that did as well. Right, but so Google got to work um, decking out some. Other proprietary vehicles. They weren't creating their own car right. from scratch. That's one thing to make clear. Yeah, the first one that I remember being uh, released to the public or the information that's released to the public was a Toyota Prius, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, they also, they've used Lexus. Yes, they have, um, which is also a Toyota, Toyota. <laughs> company. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but so they, um, in 2010, I believe it was, they went public with right. this. Yeah, they had uh, been they, working on it for like a year, but that was when we but, found out about it. Yeah, there was a big uh, Google blog post yeah. where they announced that... Uh, uh, look, y'all, we're, there are all these traffic accidents, um, cars are not driving efficiently, and people are spending way too much time behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. We can solve all three of these problems at once if we create self-driving cars. Right. Just take people out of the equation and everything goes better. Right. right because we're, we're as moving, quote, the, the loose nut between the yes. gas pedal and the steering wheel. That's my favorite. That's my favorite joke for <laughs> it, mechanics. Yeah. As, as we talked about in the previous episodes, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration estimates that more than 90 percent of road crashes are due to human error. Yeah. I've seen I've seen uh, figures everywhere between 80 percent to 90 percent. That that's huge like if you could remove that 80 to 90 percent then you would significantly decrease the number of injuries and deaths perhaps terribly upset the car insurance industry but (laughs) which you know that's okay uh you also have efficiency to consider uh machine drivers are going to be way more efficient than human drivers because they have like established rules that govern when they gas and brake and right. sure and especially they, once you set up a network of these things and these autonomous cars start working together to clear out traffic exactly yeah, yeah. uh in 2012 um an IEEE study aye aye <laughs> they uh they estimated that they think uh, a highway filled entirely with autonomous cars instead of with human-driven cars can increase the capacity of that highway five times. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, now now we just have to uh, get to the point where we don't need jobs anymore, and then we'll just stay at home and our cars will drive everywhere for us for no reason. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, you know what's interesting well, to me? You, you know what they? You know what the Google car uses as its primary sensor, right? Is it LiDAR? Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard about this? Okay, so imagine... It's lasers. Yeah. It's LiDAR. Six, LiDAR is... 64 lasers. That's not radar for detecting lies. No. no. <laughs> um, L-I-D-A-R. Yes, it's, it's 64 lasers. All right, so imagine that you've got a pack of 64 lasers in a turret on top of a car and that turret rotates at 600 revolutions per minute. And th- what it's doing is it's just constantly scanning its environment so that it can detect minute changes as as it's traveling through a, a space. So it knows not only what stationary objects are nearby, it can track when things are moving and then be able to plot against that. Um, now granted, I think I think in every case that I've read, Google only allows people who are using these cars to operate them on highways. 
uh, once they pull off onto surface streets, it has to go under manual control by Google's policy. Um, and of course, these are not cars that are allowed outside of the realms of Google. Uh, but that is changing. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is that you know it, it was 2010 when Google unveiled this, and there weren't really any laws on the books that would allow for autonomous cars. In fact, most of the laws in the world specify that you have to have a driver behind the wheel in control of the vehicle at all times. But actually, that is now changing. And in a few places in the United States, it's already changed. Uh, Right. In California, Nevada, and Florida, there have been laws passed that specifically allow for the testing of autonomous cars. Nevada was the first. Yeah. in, uh, In 2011, they passed Assembly Bill number 511. And what that basically did was it allowed the State Department of Transportation to revise their laws to accommodate for autonomous cars. Right. Now, in this case, there still has to be a driver behind the wheel, but the driver does not have to be in control of the vehicle at all times. Yeah. Um, And so Nevada actually followed through with that. And in 2012, they officially approved a license for autonomous cars. Yes, I saw that in May of 2012. I know that Florida... uh, Florida being one of the other states that allowed for autonomous car testing. This is, I, I honestly don't know the reasoning behind this. I'm just going to throw it out there and see if you guys think it's realistic. Do you think that it's possibly because of the aged population in Florida, that this was something that Florida was interested in? Uh, well, I don't know, but I, I mean, I've read that a lot of the reasoning behind autonomous cars is uh, giving more mobility to people, say, who like don't sure. see as well as they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but would still like to be able to have some independent movement around sure. the city. I would guess that um, that Disney might have something to say about that as well. well I, it I is, could. It, the autonomous cars are legal in California and Florida. Those are the two places where Disney parks are in the United States. So, um, yeah. and Google's also in California. So, you know, so that's probably collusion thing, yeah. is a little is a little a <laughs> uh, little on the flimsy side. Uh, so that's where it is so far. I believe uh, DC also, I think, has been working on this, but now. Um, there are a bunch of states that are starting to that are considering it. Yeah. yeah. And the federal government is uh, kind of saying, you know, of course, in the United States, for those who are not in the United States, we have state governments and we have fe- the federal government. The federal government has been on record as saying, guys, you might want to slow down a little bit before you start passing all this legislation on a state by state basis, simply because. Uh, we don't have enough data here to be able to legislate responsibly. Whereas the technology companies are saying, look, all the data that's coming back is showing that this is way safer than the alternative. Yeah. So, right. Uh, a report published by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, which which is a nonprofit, although it is funded by the American auto industry, um, in 2012 said that collision warning and braking systems are already helping drivers avoid accidents. Right. Um, that, that statistically, if you are dri- if you are in a car, that has these systems, you are less likely to be in an accident. Yeah, and also it's good to keep in mind that typically these laws, uh, they sort of unveil these new motor rights in different stages, so they're opened on private roads before they are on public roads. Right, right. Um, and I guess that's to allow for testing and all and that. And it's, it's not just Google that's getting into this game, actually. There are quite a few companies that are all investing in their own auto- automated car technology. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Tesla, right? Tesla, yeah. Toyota is another one, mm-hmm. Nissan. BMW, I mean, Ford, GM, Volvo, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Nissan, right, right, Toyota. Yeah, all of these have, at least in the testing stages, various forms of these things. And a lot of them are saying that within the next 10 years, they're going to be rolling out, if not fully automated cars, at least um, 
auto assist yeah. cars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. With more, because again, this may be one of those things where because of the legislative barriers, there may be some time that we'll have to wait to see automated cars being available for the average consumer. Uh, I'm sure they'll be prohibitively expensive for most people when they first, when they first hit the roads as well. But I think it's going to be, <laughs> I think it's going to be a few years just because of the legislative side, but we will still benefit from that technology in other ways with more uh, more advanced crash prevention systems, parking assistance, that kind of stuff. Yeah, speaking to the price, uh, I believe right now an autonomous car is running about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, I saw. That sounds about right. Yeah. I saw one guy say that uh, that there's always the possibility that before we see fully autonomous cars rolling off the manufacturing plants out of all these these companies that we may see aftermarket kits where you can convert a car over to an autonomous vehicle but even that would be in the $100,000 range. So, still not cheap. Sure, yeah. And you know the 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 kinds of companies that are putting out things that you can buy right now that are partially autonomous are like Mercedes-Benz, which has a, a radar and stereoscopic cameras that will help you determine, you know, help your car determine the speed of of traffic around you and also your position within a lane and keep you there up to speeds of about 18 miles per hour. Yeah, and I think uh GM uh they've said that they're they're going to have partially autonomous Cadillacs by 2015. Well, We'll see. That's really close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, and partially autonomous. I mean, that's vague enough where you could argue that there are cars on the market right now that have that. Uh, one of the upcoming systems um, that I'm excited about and, and another another sponsor plug, this one is from Toyota, um, is a uh, cooperative adaptive cruise control, part of which uses transceivers to broadcast speed acceleration and braking in between different cars on the road. So that way you can maintain the proper vehicle distance between you and the car in front of you, that kind of thing? Uh, right, with something a little bit more interactive than just the the, the, the lasers, the receptors right. that, are, that are figuring out what's going on. Yeah, more than just an alarm or something right. along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, um, MIT had a great little uh, post about some recent research that came out of the Google experiments. Now, Google has been running these these uh, cars for something like over 300,000 miles accumulatively. If you add them all up together, it's like 300,000 miles of, of travel time. They've had one accident <laughs> – <laughs> and according to according to Google, that was done while the car was under manual control, yep. not under computer control. So uh, I think they also got rear-ended once. Yes. Well, uh, yeah, but the when they took the black box readings, because a lot of what is is going into these autonomous cars is also a, a very intricate um, recording system for everything mm-hmm. that's going on in the car. I mean, you know, they, they are in the testing stages, so of course that data is very valuable. Um, but it proved that the autonomous car braked appropriately and that the guy behind him that rear-ended him was not paying attention. Right. And just... Just... Just hit into them, yeah, because yeah. the car did exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah, a lot of this research that's going on right now is about how to manage the interface between humans and computers, and and you know where a human should take over, where a computer should take over, what specialties both of these operators can have, and right. some of the questions being posed are about you know whether or not reckless driving behavior is actually really important in some situations. You know, whether or not a computer could handle a situation wherein you kind of need to go over a line or you need to speed up or slow down at a, at a rate of speed that isn't otherwise advisable or break a traffic law. Yeah, it does seem that for the most part, the, uh, the autonomous cars are able to respond much, much faster than any human could 
in a uh, a more smooth transition than humans. However, that's that's based that, upon a certain set of rules. Well, yeah, and and assuming that everyone is in an autonomous car, that's fine. But when you are the one person in an autonomous car and you're driving in a town full of crazy people, like, I don't know, Atlanta, then it may be that your car is doing everything that's right, but, you know, it may still not save you from a crash. Of course, we can't plan for everybody's behavior, obviously. You can only do the best you can. Uh, One of the other interesting things from that MIT post was that uh, the data shows that automated cars spend less time in what they called near collision states, meaning that that, <laughs> that they that's how you usually drive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't drive at all, so so that makes it easy. Uh, yeah, but near co- if I were to drive, I'd be in a constant near collision state, and uh, some might argue that Georgia is a near collision state. But the uh, no, the the actual definition there is when you are engaging in behaviors that are more likely to cause a collision. Things like Accelerating too quickly, braking too quickly, following too close, following right. much too closely. Yeah, in the automated cars because you set up these very specific rules for them to follow. They have to follow those rules, so they tend to operate within uh, much safer parameters than your typical driver would. Though, also, I've read if uh, if you were to imagine an entirely automated highway, those cars can follow much more closely, much more safely. Oh, sure. Than if, human drivers. If you can. were able, oh, right. if everyone were automated, like if if either the well, once highway you have system, that infrastructure and all the cars are talking to one another, yeah. then then yeah, theoretically you could do that. And also, cars behind you know larger vehicles would even benefit from drafting at that point. You're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, saving right. on fuel but you know that's building out an infrastructure is is really really hard and uh i think i think we'll see automated cars before we see automated infrastructures on a wide scale basis though an interesting thing about uh the most recent developments in automated cars is they might not depend on that much infrastructure like we used to imagine that well in order to really have automated highways, you need like you know computers in the roads that control everything. Right. But we're creating fleets of automated cars today that do just fine simply by reacting to each other. Right. And when or it, through differential GPS systems, so that they're paying attention to to not only your position via satellite but via markers in the road. Right. Yeah. Like I said, I think I think there are a couple of different. Uh, barriers that we have to get over for automated cars to become a reality for the average consumer. Uh, the big one being legislative, because I think it is going to take a lot of work to get to a point where automated cars have a legal designation that is recognized not just within a state, but between states and within between countries even right. for them to be a viable form of transportation. I think I think a thing that's going to help with that is is the the, the parallel to all of this, wherein insurance companies are providing black boxes uh, as an opt in option for opt in option. That was a really great turn of phrase uh, mm-hmm. for 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 their drivers to potentially get a lower rate on their car insurance mm-hmm. and not many people but maybe like a, a, about a third of people I supposedly are signing up for these things and so they're starting to gather data on driving habits a lot more on top of that the uh, other barrier I would say is we've seen this happen a lot in various networks right where you get a proprietary network where other networks can't necessarily communicate with it so for example we talk about an automated house and right now you can do a lot of automation at home but the easiest way of doing that is to buy all of your stuff from one source 
because buying it from multiple sources means you have to find some way of making them communicate with each other. Sure. However, if you have, for example, an um, Apple TV and also an iPhone and also... Right. If you're all within one ecosystem, you're great. But if you're not, if you're if your ecosystem is not homogenous, then you're in trouble. Well, as we know... Traffic is not a homogenous situation. People have all sorts of different cars out there from different model models and different makers. So uh, unless uh, we were to have an agreed upon set of standards that all vehicles were using in order for their uh, information to communicate properly, then you have potentially a fleet of cars that doesn't really communicate with each other very well. They need to all speak the same language and um – that's something that maybe has yet to be devised. In fact, I think we talked in our previous podcast about this, about maybe the need for something like a traffic protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And it's one of those things where you, you need either, there needs to either be a leader in the space and everyone ends up following suit because they just, they've defined it, or there needs to be some sort of uh, public regulation. initiative. Yeah, like, like, like in, where did IP came, come from? Oh, well, that came out of ARPANET. So, so that was like a public initiative yeah. that created the protocol that all of the private organizations would end up using. Right. So you could get a, some form of independent entity, like maybe even the IE, uh, being able to come up and, uh, you know, a group of engineers that come up with a, a, uh, a standard language that would be used. But I mean, all of this is jumping way ahead. We still aren't entirely sure when we'll see these cars um, become something that we could actually purchase. To mention IE again, uh, they they predicted uh, also last year that in their view, by 2040, 75% of cars on the road will be autonomous. That'll be... Wow, that's, uh, that's bold. I, I would love that future so much. Just I'm imagining yeah. how traffic would become such uh so much more smooth studies show the young people like this idea i'm it's more popular i'm liking as it even more down in i'm ages. liking it even more now <laughs> huh. uh well young young people are certainly the ones who are most likely to pick up these black boxes from their insurance companies so i so i guess that would that would make perfect sense yeah you know uh, but I mean, I think I like it the most because I don't drive. So for me, having something like this where maybe I do, you know, drive occasionally, but I have a vehicle that does most of my driving for me would give me uh, even more freedom or more importantly, would mean my wife is no longer my chauffeur. Oh, sure. And and as we talked about in that previous episode, it would certainly open doors to people who are uh, who, who are unable to drive for various physical health reasons. Sure. Yeah. Uh, or not I, health, but right. I remember know. I do. I did read one thing from um, uh, uh, MIT professor John Leonard, who has worked on navigation systems for autonomous cars, who said he doesn't believe we'll see a totally autonomous taxi service within his lifetime. He doesn't think that's ever going to happen while he's still, uh, you know, walking, treading the earth. So, uh, and he's he's working on the problem, and it's not again, it's not just. A technological thing. It's also a social thing, and that was kind of what he was pointing out that that taxi drivers uh, um, provide a, a an important role in society, particularly if they are efficient and nice. Uh, he was talking about this about Manhattan, but said, "Really, I mean more of the European style taxi <laughs> drivers." I was about to say. All right, so I think uh, I think we're good on self-driving cars for the near future. Of course, I say that probably tomorrow there'll be some breaking news that'll necessitate us to do a whole new podcast, but that's okay because I love this topic. 
So guys, make sure you go to fwthinking.com. That is our homepage where you can find the blog posts, podcasts, uh, videos, articles, all sorts of cool information about the future. Go check that out. And also look for us on Facebook and Twitter with the handle fwthinking. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Your getaway with Apple Vacations begins the moment you step on board one of our exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Escape the ordinary with packages starting at just $599. No layovers, just pure relaxation from takeoff to touchdown. Immerse yourself in the joy of travel with Apple Vacations. Your journey is as enchanting as the destination, so pack your bags and leave the rest to us. Visit AppleVacations.com or call your local travel advisor to book your vacation. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first. Learn more at westmonroe.com. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.